Welcome to Victory Over Communism with Bill Gertz, the only program willing to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. Your host and guide to victory over communism is one of the nation's most experienced national security journalists, Bill Gertz who uses unique facts, pinpoint analysis, and exclusive interviews to identify and counter today's destructive communist ideologies. Now, Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Welcome to the program. The VOC podcast is about ideology, communist and Marxist ideology. It's my firm hope to help educate Americans and the people of the world to the fact and the reality of these destructive ideologies that have caused misery and tyranny wherever they have been imposed. As radio host Mark Levin said in his landmark book on American Marxism, a fundamental element of the Marxists is to promote a hate America agenda. The progressive intellectuals of the late 1800s and early 1900s laid the foundation for the present-day acceptance and indoctrination of Marxist ideology throughout academia, society, and the culture, Levin said. They made clear their hostility towards capitalism and the constitutional Republican system that established barriers against tyrannies of various kinds including that which is born from the mob or centralized autocracy, and of course, what would become known as progressivism. That's from Mark Levin. The progressive intellectuals included Marxists, but a common feature of all these progressives is the promotion of the destruction of religion and ultimately faith in God within the United States. America was founded as a Judeo-Christian nation with spiritual values that provided a foundation for what at the time was a bold experiments in democracy. This is what President Abraham Lincoln was talking about in his Gettysburg Address. That's when he spoke about a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. American Marxists and progressives are engaged in a serious campaign to destroy the government Lincoln spoke of, and only by understanding their ideology and the means to impose it can it be stopped. That's what the goal of the VOC podcast is all about. This Hate America campaign by progressives that began in the late 1800s and early 1900s is succeeding. That's because it's based on lies and deception. The lies are designed not to promote a better society or a better way of life for people. It is based on the recognition that Marxist and quasi-Marxist ideologies, for the vast majority of people, are alien to our free and democratic culture. Thus, Marxists have carried out a decades-long effort to re-educate and indoctrinate people with the goal of converting them into masses of radicals and revolutionaries. Today's progressive intellectuals, both Marxist and non-Marxist, are devoted to the anti-capitalist ideology and embraced communism's core themes. Back in 1989, the New York Times, then a serious newspaper that had not been fully radicalized like it is today, exposed Marxism influences on Marxist influences on American colleges and universities. In a headline, kind of said it all, the mainstreaming of Marxism in the U.S. colleges. It was October 29, 1989. The article states, 
As Karl Marx's ideological heirs in communist nations struggle to transform his political legacy, his intellectual heirs on American campuses have virtually completed their own transformation from brash, beleaguered outsiders to assimilated academic insiders. It could be considered a success story for the students of class struggle who were once regarded as subversives. But some scholars say that as Marxists have adapted, their ties to the 19th century German philosopher have fragmented into a loosely knit collection of theories with little in common. In the past decade, while the prosperity of Western economies has made Marxism irrelevant to many, new rival radical theories have arisen to challenge the Marxists themselves. The article goes on to explain that an Americanized adaption of Marxism has been normalized. It uses Marx's core precepts and puts them in the context of the American system. The ultimate goal is to overthrow the system, both uh, governmental, economic, social, and cultural. As the New York Times put it, Marxism and feminism, Marxism and deconstruction, Marxism and race, this is where the de current exciting debates are, according to Jonathan M. Weiner, professor of history at the University of California at Irvine. It was during this period from 1989 that the radical ideology critical theory was put forth, first time. Its goal is subversion of the existing society through weaponizing the culture against itself. The article highlighted what became a central tenet of critical race theory and other adaptations of Marxism to Americanism. They argued that the assault on American history, institutions, and traditions, or the dominant white culture. The Marxists and progressives have used white race and false concepts of white privilege and made that central to their covert revolution. This reached a zenith in the New York Times 1619 project that asserted that the United States did not begin with the revolution against British rule in 1776, but with slavery in 1619. The 80s were the beginning of the ideological assault on teaching traditional history. Today on American colleges and university campuses, Professors are unfettered in using Marxism as a key doctrinal tool to promote the destruction of the United States and the imposition of a Marxist or communist system based on questionable promises of achieving equity, equality, and racial justice. These buzz phrases have been adapted by the highest levels of American society with little understanding that they are ideological tools in the destruction of the current social and political order. American academics have adopted a multifaceted Marxist ideology throughout course curricula, whether it's Marxist feminism or Marxist market-driven economies or analytical or statistical Marxism. The progressives also sought to institutionalize their ideological drive through controlling administrations at universities and through controlling tenure and hiring practices. Social activism became the stealth code used by Marxists, which is being promoted and sadly adopted at the highest levels of society. The progressives are the intellectual offspring of Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx. They share the overarching view that the individual must be subjugated to the greater community and that America's past must be rejected if there is to be societal progress, code for the false regime of communism. 
As Mark Levin puts it in America, uh, in America, capitalism and constitutionalism are ramparts that stand against Marxism and progressivism and therefore must be discredited and ultimately demolished. For progressives and Marxists, economic and political power must be in the same hands. And as Lenin showed, the small revolutionary band must be in charge of the state. Thus, the masses must be conditioned through indoctrination to abandon the supposedly obsolete ideals of tradition, custom, faith, patriotism in pursuit of this communist utopia. As with Chinese communism, the progressives seek to force change in people to the point of first accommodating and then supporting autocratic rule so the regime can manage their lives better than they can. This must be achieved first through the transformation and seizing of the culture and governing institutions. The Marxists know that their revolution requires popularizing progressivism through controlling the education system. This helps explains how the increasingly radicalized Democratic Party is promoting free college education, the canceling of student loan debt to step up uh, getting more young people into the Marxist-dominated education system. The purpose is less about teaching classical liberal education or science, technology, and engineering and mathematics to a larger number of students than really indoctrinating as many young people as possible to support their radical dogma. American Marxists also are seeking to radicalize people before college by corrupting pre-college primary and secondary schools and curricula. Thus, we have seen an assault on academic freedom and free speech. Speakers at universities and schools that promote American exceptionalism, patriotism, faith-based principles are viciously attacked, often violently, by groups like leftists Antifa, Antifa and others. The attacks are also targeting anyone who does not support the Marxist-centric educational orthodoxy. A case in point in this progressive uh, radical system is John Dewey. He was a radical educator uh, who drastically altered the traditional education system in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Dewey called for a public top-down government-managed socialism as a replacement for capitalism. That is a spontaneous form of commerce arising from individuals voluntarily entering into economic relations. It's not a planned economic system imposed on people by a government regime, capitalism. For Dewey and others, that is the problem. Authority, social engineering, grandiose plans can only work, only succeed, if they are imposed on the population, which requires usurping the very foundation of America's purpose. Constitutionalism and capitalism limit the role or possibility of a centralized authoritarianism and Conversely, empower the individual within the framework of the civil society. As such, they are utterly incompatible with Marxism and Marxism's offspring, progressivism, which seek the widest latitude over the development and future state of a society. The party controls the government and the government controls the society. There is little room for philosophical or political diversity. The Democratic Party is seeking to destroy the independence of the judiciary by packing courts with progressive ideologues, seeking a permanent Democratic majority in the Senate through ending the filibuster, 
making a DC, making District of Columbia a state, which would give them more senators, and nationalizing the election system. The objective is to marginalize tens of millions of Americans from any role in national governance. The effect would be to kill Republicanism and representative government. Here, the Green New Deal, uh, one of the radical agendas being put forth, is one program really supported by the Democratic Party and partially adopted by the Biden administration, which is waging a war on man-made climate change. Private property is at risk from these programs, all in the name of a greater good and community. The Democratic Party also favors a key goal of progressivism, that is the redistribution of wealth through heavy taxation of labor, income, and wealth, accompanied by Marxist class warfare propaganda. Authoritarian measures imposed during the COVID pandemic also were designed to radically expand the power of the welfare state, spending trillions to bolster its political and ideological base. This also creates greater dependence on government. Dewey, John Dewey, argued as Marx had that the nation's youth must be freed from existing morals, values, belief systems, traditions, customs, and the like through public education and made ready for another sort of programming. The classroom provides a captive audience of millions of children, a perfect setting for Marxist-oriented indoctrination. The call to science and reason also had been used by Marxists and progressive. That said, to be clear, people of tradition, faith, and custom don't reject science or reason, but they do not worship them either. The state of affairs in education that we confront in the United States today is the Marxist notion of control the schools and the curriculum, control the teachers and the classroom, and in time, control the minds and hearts of the population. This is the radicalization of culture through education and media propaganda propaganda with radical Marxist-based ideologies such as critical theory. The ideological underpinnings of modern progressive movements were spawned from Marxism. Rather than learning allegiance to the nation's founding, uh, founding and ideals and celebrating life and a free and civil society, successive generations of students are being taught hatred for their own country, its history, its founding, and are encouraged to renounce it. Indeed, mankind was now to be defined by his surroundings, and in particular, materialism, the foundational principle of Marxism, also known as material historicism. As I have frequently mentioned, American Marxists Marxism greatly expanded in the late 1950s and and early 1970s in the new left radical movement on American college campuses. Students for a Democratic Society, among the most prominent of the new left groups, was founded in 1959 and issued its political manifesto, the Port Huron Statement, in 1962. The Port Huron Statement is a platitudinous, rambling, pop psychoanalytical essay condemning capitalism and endorsing a Marxist revolution. The new left generally avoided the traditional forms of political organization in favor of strategies of mass protest, direct actions, and civil disobedience. The ideological driver of the new left uh, was German-born Marxist Herbert Marcuse, a fierce anti-capitalist. Marcuse taught at several American universities, including Columbia, Harvard, and Brandeis. 
Marcuse is a key figure in the new left that extends to the current critical theory movements that actively seek to undermine and ultimately supplant American society and culture. In any event, Marcuse asserted, like Marx, that anything short of a full-fledged revolution would fail to dislodge the scourge of capitalism and the dominant culture. Of course, this is wrong. For example, is there a Marxist regime anywhere on earth that is not a police state? China, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, all police states. The imposition of the Marxist ideology from an abstraction to reality has left tens of millions of suffering and dead human beings in its wake. In the last several decades, building on Dewey's work and adopting Marxist ideas developed and espoused by the likes of Marcuse and others, and adapting them to American society and culture, the teaching and promotion of Marxism and Marxist notions in the classroom have been open and pervasive on American college campuses. The tenets of Marxism are being used in numerous ways to attack American society and culture on myriad fronts, making these movements much more difficult to confront and challenge. Marxism's tentacles have reached deeply into American society, and its ubiquity has led to a kind of acquiescence and, or passive embrace from corporate boardrooms and even professional sports teams to newsrooms and beyond, or even openly celebrated, albeit under different names. At its core, however, Marxism is named for the man and the ideology he propounded at great length in numerous writings. Its principles and arguments provide the foundation for the unmaking of our constitutional republic and market-based economy, regardless of and despite its various permutations in academia and elsewhere. As Levin makes clear... Academia and its rule over education of generations of students that serve as the most serves as the most potent force for Marxist indoctrination and advocacy, and the most powerful impetus for its acceptance and spread. And it is these students, the real target of Marxist thought, who form the basis for resistance, rebellion, and even revolution. Marxism is a uniquely alluring ideology in that Marx wraps his ideology in the language of the underdog and the oppressed and calls for the eradica ratification, eradication of the status quo, for it is said to be corrupt through and through. It is a collective salvation, a social mysticism. It might come by and by, but such a promise is not pie in the sky. It imagines a transformation of humanity, an evolutionary leap to a different way of human interaction that can be enormous in its emotional appeal. Underlying all of Marxism is its hatred of religion and specifically Christianity. Of course, this was the theme of the riots in the summer of 2020. The widespread violence initiated and organized by Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and other Marxist-oriented groups, among others. It was these riots that led to greater acceptance of and support for BLM throughout the culture, including in the Democratic Party, corporations, professional sports, and newsrooms, to name a few. Moreover, the revolutionary is intolerant of differing beliefs or ideas of intellectual challenges or opposition. He demands conformity, which he declares as unity and communiality. Consequently, it is unsurprising that the world's most renowned and notorious Marxist revolutionaries were greatly influenced by their college experiences and studies. 
Although China's Mao Zedong was born into a peasant family, his biography explains that he trained as a teacher and he traveled to Beijing where he worked in the university library. It was during this time that he began to read Marxist literature. In 1921, he became a founding member of the Chinese Communist Party and set up a branch in Hunan. Other communist leaders also got their start at universities. If you wondered why college-age people were participating in violent uprisings during the summer of 2020 and since, certainly a primary reason was the indoctrination they had been getting to join the revolution and resistance, led by such groups as Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And given that most colleges and university campuses had been closed to physical attendance due to the coronavirus, they had both the time and opportunity to join in the, quote, mostly peaceful protests, which were anything but. Brainwashing against the American founding and civil society and indoctrination about activism and protest, even violent if necessary are constantly preached throughout academia. The goal is to create a generation of revolutionaries. Thus, the agenda for the Marxist faculty member is clear, to create an army of anti-American youth who will do the bidding of the Marxist faculty as they emerge from academia and enter the workplace. Self-identified Marxists are no more than a tiny fraction of the general public in the United States, which means that there is a huge discrepancy between this very small group in the population and the very large one being found among social science professors. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. Hi, this is Bill Gertz. I wanted to talk to you briefly about my latest book. It's called Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. This is the most important book you can read to fully understand the threat posed by the Chinese Communist government. I urge you to get a copy today. It can be got, found at my website, The Gertz File, that's GertzFile.com, or at the book site called DeceivingTheSky.com. If you enjoy listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, please consider helping Bill with his important work of educating patriots just like you about how communism is very real and even more dangerous than ever before. Your donation to the Victory Over Communism program will help expand its reach across America and throughout the world. In fact, you'll be helping to provide the kind of information that may well make its way behind the new Iron Curtain and the Great Firewall of China and inspire those living under communism to seek freedom. Supporting the Victory Over Communism program is easy. Just visit the program website, victoryovercommunism.net, and click on the link at the bottom to gofundme.com. Again. Just visit victoryovercommunism.net and click on the link to GoFundMe.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless America. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the program. This is the counterproposal section that builds on the critique of communism and Marxism to explain in spiritual terms, Judeo-Christian terms, why they are false. The counterproposal is based on the revelations of the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon. 
who put forth a new and vitally important understanding of the nature of God and the universe called the divine principle. In this episode, I'm going to provide the VOC counterproposal to the communist law of dialectics. According to dialectical materialism, a central feature of communism, the universe is made up of matter, which is in constant motion. This motion is supposedly maintained through the dialectical process. The laws of the dialectic are a substantial part of dialectical materialism. They compose comprise one of the four fundamentals of communism. They are supposedly laws which are governing nature and society. Therefore, for Marxists, they are laws of progress guiding human history. The VOC worldview position is that progress and development do not occur through the confrontation of thesis and antithesis, resulting in a synthesis. According to the law of di dialectics, progress occurs through conflict. Kobe Goldberg, a researcher with the Asia-Pacific Program at the Center for New American Security, outlines how Xi Jinping adopts this theory uh, in his sp recent speech. Xi stated in the opening lines of a speech to the Central Committee on January 23, 2015, that was later republished in the journal Kyushi, which is the authoritative CCP journal of theory, Quote, dialectical materialism is the worldview and methodology of Chinese communists. The most important thing is that we proceed always from objective reality rather than subjective desire. If the ways of the world are governed not by the will of the individual, but by external material conditions, by objective reality rather than subjective desire, as she put it, then history's arc can be read but not bent. Xi Jinping often compares material trends to the ocean. The tide of the world is surging forward, he said, during a visit to Russia. The people of the world must rally closely together like passengers in the same boat. Through the materialist worldview of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi has concluded that history's tides are moving towards economic integration, not military confrontation. However, dialectical materialism teaches Xi that the dialectic, the state of permanent conflict created as contradictions in the world emerge and resolve themselves, producing progress and new contradictions, that this requires the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to remain ever vigilant to the changing conditions of the material that forms reality. Dialectical thinking helps explain what many observers describe as the CCP's ideological flexibility. Material conditions might at one time dictate that the party must eradicate the capitalist class as it attempted under Mao, and then next year lead the CCP to welcome entrepreneurs into its rank as members it officially did in the 90s. Material conditions could make the United States the enemy in the 1950s and a partner in the 1970s. The dialect affects such changes. Objective reality is not fixed, but rather develops in changes in all the time. Change is the most natural thing in the world, she told the party members. If we cling to our perception of China's realities as they were in the past without adjustment, we will find it difficult to move forward. For Xi, it is conflict that is the essential element in China's modernization. Not necessarily military conflict, but definitely ideological conflict. And that is the message of the CCP. Looking further back, a standard Marxist philosophy book from the Soviet Union reads, Conflict alone is the source, the driving force of development. 
In contrast to this, the VOC worldview maintains that development and progress take place not from conflict but through cooperation. As this is shown to be true, then clearly the law of dialectics will be revealed as a false doctrine. I'm going to elaborate on this principle of cooperation, but first I will ask how Marx derived his view of relationships. When did people start to think that development occurs through conflict? In general, the belief in conflict as the norm in nature and human society is the result of accepting an imperfect or sinful human. That is, humanity separated from God as the norm in human life. As a consequence of this separation from God, contradiction and conflict are pervasive in human life. There is a basic split within each person between spirit and body. There is a conflict between husband and wife. There is conflict between races. There is conflict between nations. It's undeniable that these conflicts exist. However, it was Marx who maintained that this conflict was the norm. Marxists seek the conflict and con contradiction found in sinful society and then generalize this predicament as the, a law of nature. Marxists proclaim that conflict is nature's most basic dynamic. This is not the case. The law of nature and human progress is the law of cooperation. Contradiction and conflict are not the means by which progress and development take place in nature. Yeah, certainly there's conflict in some elements of nature, but as a secondary phenomenon, nature exists and multiplies not on the basis of conflict, but through cooperation. For example, between the, uh, the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, we have a clear example of co cooperation. Plants exhale oxygen, and that oxygen can be used by animals. Animals exhale carbon dioxide, which in turn is valuable for plants. Through such cooperation, life is maintained. Everywhere around us, we find the same kind of cooperative process as nature's basic relationship. We find that even on a sub-microscopic level between protons and electrons or nuclear, nuclei and electrons, there's this cooperation. There is harmonious interaction of forces which allows for matter to exist. We find the same relationship existing on a cosmic level between the sun and the planets and other galaxies. In human society, fruitful relationships are also founded upon cooperation and reciprocity between parents and children, teachers and students, employers and employees, and consumers and business people. The essence of a healthy relationship is cooperation. Unfairness or exploitation creates mistrust. For VOC, Victory Over Communism, mistreatment of one's fellow human results from humanity's separation from God. The true law of life and progress is what is called give-and-take action. Cooperative relationships are relationships based on a principle of give-and-take. Consider how give-and-take occurs. There are two preconditions that must be satisfied before give-and-take can take place. These are, one, the possibility of human benefit, and two, the positions of subject and object. Condition one is a mutual benefit or common purpose. In order to have real give-and-take action, there must first be a common purpose. Different parties come together when such a relationship exists and will serve their mutual benefit. Condition two is this idea of subject and object. Between complementary elements, there must be a relationship of subject and object. 
The subject is the element that initiates the action of giving. The object, in turn, responds to the initiative. Uh, I'll emphasize here the position does not affect value. That is, the subject does not have a greater value than the object, nor vice versa. In addition, these positions are generally interchangeable. For example, when one person is speaking and another person is listening, then the first person is subject and the second person is object. Later, if the second person begins speaking, the first person becomes an object. There's a constant changing of roles according to whether one is giving or receiving. Whenever these two preconditions are met, give and take action can take place. Through give and take action, energy is generated. Energy is necessary for all existence, action and multiplication. We experience this constantly in our daily lives. We may have an inspiring conversation with a friend, for example. Afterwards, we feel refreshed and uplifted because such kind of give and take action experience produces energy. On every level, energy is what enables life and activity to continue. Energy is responsible for promoting multiplication, action, and progress. What's the dynamic that produces energy in any situation? It is this giving and receiving in a subject-object relationship. And so what is the cause of all subject and object relationships? Who designed this original dynamic? It is God. God is the primary or initiating energy that is the cause of all give and take action. And we refer to this energy as universal prime energy. Give and take action is the method by which every being can tap into universal prime energy, and thereby draw energy to exist, act, and multiply. Some practical examples of this give and take action are mind and body and husband and wife. Within each person, there are two dimensions that are meant to function together in harmony. These are the psychic and somatic dimensions. That is, each of us has a mind and a body. The relationship between mind and body determines the character of an individual. Ideally, there must be a harmonious exchange between mind and body. For example, if every single day for 10 years a person sits in front of a video game and says, I ought to do something for the poor, does that make him a good person? No, because it remains on the level of the mind. There has to be a relationship between mind and body and between thoughts and deeds. For development to take place, the body should act on the wishes of the mind. A harmonious exchange between the spirit or mind and the body is what determines the character of a human being. Mind and body may also work together in an evil way. It's possible to have evil thoughts and to put those evil thoughts into action. For good or evil, give and take action operates within all human beings. The principle of give and take operates within a family. A God-centered family is a family in which there is a harmonious relationship between husband and wife. In such a relationship, there is a perfect circuit of give and take of love. Out of the harmonious relationship between husband and wife comes unity, and new creative energy comes from God. The result is happiness and the blessing of children. This happy couple is able to provide an excellent environment in which children can grow and develop. On the political level, we can see this give and take action in government and its people. Who is the subject and who is the object? In a democracy, the people are subject. The role of the government is that of a servant of the people. In a dictatorship, however, the government takes the role of subject. 
Frequently, in this case, human rights are abused and people become the slaves of their rulers. A real God-centered concern on the part of the government and the people can serve as the basis upon which the well-being of a nation can be assured. Lenin was able to apply God's law of give and take in seizing power in Russia and ruling through terrorism. This law is not the province of goodness. Vladimir Lenin, the implementer of Marxism and communism in Russia, was able to apply this principle in building a core group of supporters. This was a cooperative relationship. There was a common purpose, communist revolution. Lenin was the subject and his followers were the object. Their cooperation resulted in the success of the Bolshevik Revolution, which of course produced mass murder uh, of tens of millions of people, tyranny and misery. Of course, as a devoted Marxist, Lenin made use of the dialectic. Whenever possible, he divided opposition groups one against another to leave him free to advance his objective. He used God's law, the law of cooperation, to advance himself, and he used the law of dialectics to destroy his opponents. There are other examples. The sciences of physics and chemistry attest to the validity of subject and object relationships. The atom, for example, contains a positively charged nucleus of relatively large mass and a field of negatively charged electrons with a very small mass. The nucleus, then, is in the position subject position, and the electrons are in the object position. The interactions of these parties produce energy known, the, known to physicists as binding energy. Biological systems also exhibit subject and object interaction. A cell contains a nucleus subject surrounded by cytoplasm object. An animal has a nervous system subject and other organ systems that are the object. The interaction of these allows the animal to live. As long as this give and take action continues, an animal is able to metabolize and sustain himself. If this relationship is destroyed, the animal dies. Cosmically, the solar system also shows the principle of cooperation. Within our solar system, God established the same principle. Between the sun and the planets, there is a harmonious subject-object relationship. This serves to establish a certain order within the solar system. Centering upon God, we find subject-object harmonious relationships throughout the universe. The relationship between men and women produces children. The relationship between st stamen and pistol produces seeds and plants. The relationship between proton and electron produces an atom. In each of these cases, it's the action of giving and receiving that allows for existence, action, and multiplication. Through the union of two complementary elements, not through the dialectic, a new creation is formed. Another principle refuting the law of dialectics is what is called under the VOC worldview, the Origin Division Union, or ODU. The examples I mentioned form the basis for the principle of Origin Division Union operating in the universe. In God's process of creation, God, the invisible subject being, contains within the essence of all subjects and objects that are constantly engaged in give-and-take action. This is the point of origin. God then creates substantial subject and object beings. This represents division. When the substantiated subject and object perform give and take action, they are united into one entity, and that's the union. The union perfectly resembles the origin, which is God, and that union becomes the object of, to God. Then the give and take action 
of the origin and union takes place. The union receives the necessary energy from God to live, multiply, and develop. The important thing to note is that the subject and object are compatible. That is, they form a circuit of reciprocal relationship that allows for give and take action. This is because they originate from the harmonized being of God. This ODU principle operates on every level of nature and society. Therefore, God is clearly omnipresent. In the give-and-take relationship, the subject must, be, must give 100% of itself for the sake of the object. The object must give 100% of itself for the sake of the subject. A relationship of total giving is the way in which creation occurs. Selfishness violates the principle of total giving. Naturally, there does not exist a selfish proton, electron, stamen, or pistol. Selfishness only exists in human beings. Selfishness makes it difficult for us to be able to give of ourselves completely, and yet human beings are created to give. That is the real source of joy. It is when you give 100% for the sake of a spouse or other loved ones. A very simple experiment can be carried out to prove that we were created to give to others. Everyone has a face, but who is that face for? When you are with people, there, are, there is only one person who cannot see your face. And that's you. Obviously, your face exists for others to see. The same is true of your voice. The reality is that we have never heard and will never hear our own voice as others hear it. This is clear to us when we listen to ourselves, like me, listening to this podcast prior to posting it online. Each of us is created for others. Joy is not found by just centering on ourselves. Joy comes when we give of ourselves to others. If you think of the most precious moments in your life, they were all time spent with family and friends. Giving and receiving is a principle that exists throughout our universe, and ultimately, it's especially a principle for humankind. Secondarily, and as an auxiliary to the law of give and take, is the law of repulsion, seen in electricity and magnetism. Plus and plus and minus and minus repel. Engels claim that this is the law of dialectic in nature. But harmonious give and take action requires common purpose or mutual benefit. Also, the subject must have give and take with an object, not another subject. There is no mutual benefit between two minuses or two pluses, and therefore they repel each other. The law of repulsion is necessary and is not designed to be destructive. It's designed to augment and facilitate give and take action. When two plus charges repel, each is able to find its own minus. Only in this way can each one form a reciprocal relationship and support the perfection of the universe. In other words, give and take action is primary. When a relationship cannot bring about give and take action, there is repulsion and the two parts are pushed apart. Then each one can seek a partner from its own productive relationship. The repulsion of two protons allows each proton to attract to an electron and form an atom. In a herd of deer, two stags will battle over an available female and section of territory. They do not destroy each other, however. One will dominate and chase the other away. Then they can both find a female and breed. Marxists frequently assert labor-management relations demonstrate the dialectic as naturally operating in these relations. However, the reality is that that Applying that dialectic in a labor management relationship is destructive and brings no benefit to either party. 
The law of cooperation must be applied for labor management relations to be successful. In labor management relations, both the primary phenomena of cooperative relationship as well as the secondary phenomena of repulsion take place. Labor and management recognize fundamentally that they have a mutual dependence and they seek after mutual benefit. Extermination and total destruction of one party by the other is not the goal. The recognition of self-benefit is fundamental to the recognition of mutual dependence. In other words, it's not in the interest of labor to destroy management or vice versa. However, if labor feels that it is being treated unfairly, then there is a repulsion against management in the form of demands for an adjustment of labor relations, such as wages, benefit, working conditions, etc. Mistreatment of labor will never bring harmonious uh, give-and-take action. If, however, labor is making such excessive demands that business is collapsing, it may choose to sacrifice its own benefit for the survival of the business. Again, this is to ensure smooth and harmonious give-and-take action, which produces constructive results. It's nonsense to say that labor management relations should follow the dialectic and therefore one party should struggle to destroy the other. The goal here is not destruction, but fairness. Fairness alone will ensure harmony and result in productive give and take action. This has occurred recently in the United States regarding the railroad workers. The laborers accepted reduced benefits so that the railroad and vital supply chains could survive and prosper. The battle lines drawn today and throughout the history of communism have been constant. It is God versus communism. In our world, God is the subject and humankind is the object. Humankind is supposed to experience the love of God as his parent and subject. Yet today there is great confusion. This confusion has occurred because another subject has challenged the position of God. This subject is communism. Clearly, communism is a God-denying ideology that today is being used by the adversaries of God and religion in an attempt to dominate the world. God and communism are not compatible. God must repel communism. There can be no other subject in the sight of God. The false ideology must be destroyed and the communists must be restored to position of objects to God, along with other people of the world. There should be one subject in the universe, God, and one object, humankind. My conclusion here is simple. There is a law of cooperation and there is the Marxist law of dialectics. The dialectics was, was used as a means to negate the need for a creator. But today, we see that Marx's dialectic is false. The law of cooperation is true, and this law originates in the cause of cooperation, which we know as God. The law of give and take is simple, yet very profound. If the Marxists can grasp it, then they can understand clearly that revolution and conflict are not the way to bring about constructive change. Constructive change can only occur through a cooperative process, the action of giving and receiving. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Welcome back. This is the news section of the podcast. In this episode, I'm going to highlight the Marxist assault on language as a method of gaining political power. 
Recently, Stanford University, a bastion of Marxian ideology at a premier American university, published a listing of words and phrases that must be banned from use. It's called the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, and it was promulgated by what Stanford calls the IT community or information technology community. The listing appears based on the Marxist Black Lives Matter-inspired riots of the summer of 2020 and demands for equity, not equality, as a way to eliminate what the IT students at Stanford assert is racism in language. The listing is absurd on its face. A few of its woke word prohibitions include lame, which now should be used instead boring or uncool. The reason is that the ableist language trivializes disabled people, according to this list. The word for Native American warriors, brave, is banned completely and there's no replacement. The reason, according to the initiative, is the term perpetuates the stereotype of the noble, courageous savage, equating the indigenous male as being less than a man. The section on gender reaches further ridiculousness. Balls to the wall and ballsy must be replaced with accelerate efforts and bold risk takers because the language so somehow attributes personality traits to anatomy. Likewise, seminal is banned and replaced with groundbreaking as somehow reinforcing what Stanford students regard as male-dominated language. The forced language campaign is not limited to Stanford, but is widespread throughout the nation and is being pushed by Marxist-dominated self-described social justice warriors. It highlights the lengths Marxists on university campuses have gone to impose their ideology covertly over students. Control the language and you gain political power is the driving force behind this kind of initiative. The most egregious example in the Stanford word purge is banning use of the word American. Instead, Stanford leftists want the word replaced with U.S. citizen. The explanation provided is that the term, according to the list, often refers to people from the United States only, thereby insinuating that the U.S. is the most important country in the Americas which is actually made up of 42 countries. Anti-American exceptionalism, as I've noted in earlier podcasts, is a key theme of Marxist takeover efforts. After taking flack publicly for listing American as a banned term, Steve Gallagher, chief information officer at Stanford, was forced to issue a clarification. We have particularly heard concerns about the guide's treatment of the term American, he said in a statement. We understand and appreciate those concerns. To be very clear, not only is the term American not banned at Stanford, it is absolutely welcome. The intent of this particular entry on the EHLI website was to provide a perspective on how the term may be imprecise in some specific uses and to show that in some cases the alternate term U.S. citizen may be more precise and appropriate. But clearly, Missed the mark in this presentation, Gallagher said. The Stanford administrator insists the list does not represent university policy. But that also misses the mark in that a university entity is promoting anti-American Marxist ideology, albeit unwittingly. The late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anton, Antonin Scalia, a brilliant jurist, was once quoted as saying, Words have meaning, and their meaning doesn't change. That is absolutely true, but the meanings of commonly understood words are frequently corrupted, 
represented or obfuscated by nefarious people, especially American Marxists, seeking to destroy the U.S. capitalist system and replace it with the dictatorship of the proletariat. Interestingly, both the Chinese Communist Party and the Democratic Party are masters at obfuscating language to achieve political objectives. There are even some interesting similarities in certain aspects of messaging by both parties. I remember traveling to China in the late 90s with the Defense Secretary Bill Cohen. And upon our arrival in Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party published a statement explaining how Western democracy will never be adopted by the Chinese Communist Party that is committed to what it calls people's democracy, something that has nothing to do with real democracy and real democratic political institutions. In order to convey a false sense of legitimacy, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party ruled government in China, Xi Jinping, regularly calls the system in China whole people's democracy. This is literally a crackpot notion that is then repeated through a massive propaganda system by state-run Chinese media. The concept is absurd because in China, there is no such thing as genuine democracy. The ruling CCP is a one-party dictatorship in which only CCP-approved candidates occupy positions across all levels of government and the party. During the recently concluded 20th National Congress of the CCP, the final report included this new slogan that embellishes, quote, whole people's democracy, acting for people, relying on people. This is simply more twisted deception, which, as I've said in the past, is the most significant feature of communism and Marxism. The reality is that the CCP has been acting for the people without regard to any democratically obtained input from the Chinese people since the regime took power in 1949. Under Chinese communist ideology, the entire population was divided into two camps those that slavishly support communism, and everyone else. In communist lexicon, non-communists are enemies to be vanquished by any means necessary. The result has been tens of millions of deaths based on the inhuman views of Chinese communist ideology. The Democratic Party was once a normal part of the two-party system in the United States, once uh, very succinctly described by political pundit Stan Evans. Evans once said, we have two parties here, and only two. One is the evil party, the other is the stupid party. I'm very proud to be a member of the stupid party. He's referring to the Republicans. Occasionally, the two parties get together and do something that's both evil and stupid. We call that bipartisanship. Since the mid-2010s, however, the Democratic Party has grown increasingly radicalized as Marxist ideologues began their creeping drive to take over the party. The party today has an odd definition of democracy. For example, throughout the 2022 election campaign, one of the key pillars of the Democrats' election narrative has been the imperative to, quote, save our democracy. Joe Biden attempted to close the political sale on November 2nd in a speech devoted almost entirely to condemning, quote, extreme Republicans and urging voters to preserve democracy by electing Democrats. Coupled with the continuing Biden administration weaponization of federal agencies against perceived political opponents, 
For example, arresting peaceful anti-abortion activists, suppressing political speech, and refocusing on investigation and prosecution over various domestic terrorists like the January 6th protesters. Biden's naked political appeal is akin to the Chinese Communist Party's ongoing effort to perpetuate a one-party state. After all, saving our democracy is a thinly veiled slogan whose real meaning is to save Democrats, not the democratic action of Americans, who it is hoped would sweep the Democratic Party out of political power. Democrats would apparently like to act for the people and rely on the people by encouraging voters to support a one-party Democrat-run state, really that's analogous to communist China. This may seem like an exaggeration, but it's not. The Democratic Party progressivism is increasingly based on Marxist ideology and the false notions that capitalism must be destroyed and replaced with socialism and communism, all in the name of equity, again, not equality. Xi Jinping completed a political purge of former leader Hu Jintao and his faction of the CCP during the 20th Party Congress just recently. In a shocking display, uh, Hu Jintao, the uh, former leader, was frog-marched out of the Congress, obviously in an obviously staged event intended to convey to the assembled Communist Party uh, apparatchiks, thousands of them, and the rest of the world that she is in completely in charge and that any former leader is uh, not long for this world. Besides she, six other standing members of the newly appointed 20th Politburo are all she allies in confidence, as are members of the new Central Military Commission. Enter the era of complete unanimity of CCP thoughts and deeds and a return to Mao Zedong-style authoritarianism and a various t dangerous time for the Chinese people and the world in general. We saw the feelings of the Chinese people in the recent protests in which hundreds of people gathered and didn't just denounce the government, but they denounced Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party demanding that he step down. The Democratic Party appears to be aggressively conducting its own political purge of the, quote, Republican faction from the greater U.S. political system. It involves suppressing dissent, redesignating political dissenters as domestic terrorists, and refocusing federal law enforcement on political crimes. The actions involve silencing and canceling the political speech of those who dissent from Democrat political orthodoxy and narratives. For example, the Department of Homeland Security has embarked on an expansive effort to influence big tech and social media giants and revealed through analysis of years of internal DHS memos, emails, and documents obtained via leaks and an ongoing lawsuit as well as public documents. Misinformation and disinformation now are apparently what the Democrats and bureaucratic allies deem them to be. Despite the public outcry that temporarily stopped the DHS's Disinformation Governance Board earlier this year. A key point here is that Democrats in the Senate blocked legislation from Republicans that would have prevented DHS from setting up the Disinformation Board, which is viewed by Republicans as clearly threatening free speech in the country. The Democrats seem ignorant of the fact that the First Amendment protects all political speech. While the FBI was reoriented to go after the rioters from the Jan January 6th Capitol disturbance, 
thousands of violent Antifa and Marxist Black Lives Matter rioters that receive political support from many Democrats are being virtually ignored by the current regimes within the Department of Justice and FBI. There haven't been any prosecutions of people who trash cities and burn down police stations. The FBI targeted True the Vote, a uh, anti-election uh, fraud group, after alleged election-related crimes by the Chinese-owned Connect Corporation. After years of lies about how now dismissed Trump-Russia collusion and other politically motivated efforts to get Trump, the FBI carried out an unprecedented action against the former president by raiding his Mar-a-Lago home in August. The CCP and Democratic Party each have their own visions of what amounts to variations on the dystopian future in which each party exercises totalitarian control of their respective societies. As I've said repeatedly in this podcast, it's absolutely essential to remember that the totalitarian goals are always cloaked in lies and deception and hidden amid flowery words and slogans that mask the reality of their Marxist and communist objectives. The latest amendment to the CCP Constitution, approved several months ago, includes the slogan of advancing the building of an open, inclusive, clean, and beautiful world that enjoys lasting peace, universal security, and common prosperity. The reality is that the common prosperity mentioned there is code for Chinese communist control over all elements of life. Any shared future promised by the CCP will involve boots on the necks of all dissenters, especially ethnic and religious minorities in China, complete and intrusive social controls to manage the behavior of individual citizens, and arbitrary and punitive measures such as those associated with the CCP's mass campaign called Zero COVID that continues to destroy businesses and lives, even though they've been somewhat loosened up. For the Democratic Party, its vision of for America's future is spelled out in the party platform using Marxist code words such as stronger, fairer, universal, affordable, and healing the soul. That future is clearly seen in the past two years of leftist Democratic Party rule. Economic chaos, massive inflation, out-of-control crime, the scourge of fentanyl killing hundreds of thousands, sexualizing children, and much foreign policy incompetence. The anti-religious nature of democratic policies also was on display during the pandemic crackdowns. In Democrat-ruled states, Christian churches and synagogues were closed, while liquor stores remained open. Military service members who sought religious exemption from taking the COVID vaccine were also denied their religious rights. Similarly, the Christian advocacy group Open Doors said China's nearly 97 million Christians are facing violent persecution from the CCP that is growing. Church attendance is rigorously monitored in China, and many churches are being closed down, whether they are independent or belong to the Three Self-Patriotic Movement, the officially state-sanctioned Protestant church in China. Significantly, it remains illegal for Chinese people under 18 years of age to attend church. This is part of a long-term CCP strategy to eliminate all religion from the communist-ruled China. All meeting venues had to close during the COVID-19 crisis. Christian leaders are generally the main target of government surveillance in China. The reality of the Democrats' future vision for America includes gender affirmation, which is human experimentation and barbarism, unlimited women's health care, which can be infanticide, 
counting all the votes, undermining the credibility of elections, free health care, including for the growing masses of illegal aliens, and much, much more. How do secular Democrats equate all this damage to healing the soul of America? I, I, it, it's, it's hard to believe. Stu Sverk, uh, who was a guest uh, on this program uh, and a retired Navy captain, states that comparisons between the Chinese Communist Party and the Democratic Party in the United States are similar but not matching, at least not yet. But what the CCP has managed through 73 years of totalitarian control of communist China gives us a glimpse of the future in the U.S. under the long-term Democrat domination and control of the federal government. I'll be right back with the interview portion after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. I spoke to you earlier about my book, Deceiving the Sky. I also wanted to urge you to take a look at another book that I wrote called I War, War and Peace in the Information Age. We live in an information age, and yet we're getting bombarded with enemy propaganda coming at us from all different directions. Uh, IWAR really helps expose what we need to do and how we need to counter it. I urge you to get a copy. The book can be found at iwarbook.com or at my website, thegertzfile.com. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm joined now on the podcast by Josh Moravchek. Josh is an adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics. In addition, he is undoubtedly one of the most knowledgeable experts on communism and socialism. His most recent book is Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism. And he's also written 10 other books on international politics. Uh, Josh, welcome to the program. Bill, thanks so much for asking me to join you. Sure. My podcast is about ideology, communist and socialist ideology. Like yourself, I learned a lot about communism and its false precepts from the late Herb Romerstein, a great American and anti-communist who led the State Department's counter-disinformation program during the Reagan administration. Herb was a major influence in telling the truth about communism and socialism. As your book suggests, with its reference to an afterlife of socialism, it seems these ideologies are experiencing resurgence, with China leading the way with Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. And in the U.S., we've seen Marxism moving forward, spurred in large part by the George, George Floyd riots and the rise of Black Lives Matter. Uh, large question. Tell us a little bit about your views on the current state of communism and Marxist socialism here and abroad. Well, it, Bill, I, I would say, you know, first of all, that when I uh, thank you for mentioning my book, it, it's actually that that book that came out you know, fairly recently was a new edition of a book I had written Oh, 20 years before, and it was a very new edition because when I had written the 
the first edition, I thought that the story of socialism was basically over. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that certainly communism had been repudiated by uh, what was then the Soviet Union or by Russia and all the other nations that had been subsumed uh, within the Soviet Union and the so-called satellite states and also the other forms of socialism. Uh, the third world had had its own varieties. They were all gone. And, uh, uh, because it led to such a terrible economic results for those poor countries. And even the, the uh, most successful socialism, the kind of watered-down social democracy of Western Europe and a handful of other places, uh, had begun to uh, realize that they could only go so far down the road of building a welfare state before they really... Uh, uh, threw a wet blanket on their whole economy. So I thought the story was over. And yet, <laughs> the last few years, alas, it's clear uh, that it's not at all over. And I'm sorry to be so long-winded. I would say two main streams come out of it. On the one hand, uh, there's the, the leftist ideas uh, uh, or, or that derived from Marx, kind of, uh, are still vibrant in the West, and there are still communist regimes that show in China, North Korea, Cuba, uh, Vietnam, that, that show no signs of going away. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there are two different strains to this. One is this idea of people who still are trying to uh, uphold some kind of Marxist socialist uh, uh, philosophy. Uh, and the other is what we're seeing in Russia and in a sense in China without admitting it, uh, which is they've really abandoned socialism. Russia doesn't even pretend. Uh, China does pretend, but everyone understands uh, it's a there's a lot of state intervention, but it's uh, not at all the the egalitarian sharing of wealth that socialists had dreamed of. In fact, China is one of the most unequal countries in terms of wealth in the whole world. Uh, but they've learned that the Communist Party is a great vehicle for a small group of people to rule over the majority of people. Yeah. And so what started as an economic system, there's really you know, no economic philosophy left that you can see. But there's a system of uh, of power that, you know, that Lenin was the first one to think up mm -hmm. that uh, the, the Communist Party of China continues uh, with and the not the Communist Party of Russia, but in Russia. Uh, the, the other key pillar of the system of power in the Soviet Union was the KGB. <laughs> and it turns out that it didn't go away. And, and the new Russia is, is, in essence, ruled by it. Yeah. Yeah. My, my view is that I think Xi Jinping in, in China is going to try to re-communize Russia through control, through Putin, through the KGB system there. But... Uh, 
turning uh, domestically, uh, I guess that one, a, a lot of critics are saying that the Democratic Party today is succumbing to more radical Marxists and socialists. And is that your view? And, and what does that pretend for our two-party political system? Well, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> I mean, the big, I mean, by which I mean big questions. So, certainly, the uh, Democratic Party has just gone further and further uh, left. And yeah, we could... Um, we could call it Marxist. It's a, it's a tricky term, mm-hmm. uh, but but because this has such a, a mixture of identity politics, which is really stronger than any idea of class politics that was at the center of Marxism. Mm-hmm. And the, the the funny thing about this, and it, it surprises me, people don't focus in on it, is the first person to realize that the basic concept of struggle and building a kind of utopia by one class of people conquering another class, which was originally, you know, the working class conquering the bourgeoisie. Uh, But the first person to see that you could apply that model to other kinds of groups of people was Mussolini. He was a Marxist, and he said, well, but it shouldn't be the working class that's going to triumph over everybody. It should be the Italian nation. <laughs> and uh, then Hitler took that. He also had a lot of uh, knowledge of Marxism. And Hitler, remember, originally called himself a, a, a socialist, a national socialism. But he said it's the master race that, mm-hmm. that will usher in the new age. So. Today we have in the U.S. a kind of you know, Marxism philosophy of struggle and 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 white hats vanquishing black hats, uh, except it's all on the basis of uh, race, uh, so-called gender, uh, uh, sexual preference, uh, etc. But as far as I can see, it's really no different than what Mussolini thought of, uh, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and of course Hitler designed the uh, prison labor system, which became the Gulag Archipelago, and now we're seeing the Lao guy in China to a certain extent. Yeah, it's it's very much about power and and holding on to it. Uh, you know, those uh, advocating socialism and communism, uh, like Bernie Sanders, they extol socialism as a cure-all, but they rarely talk about their anti-capitalist views and, and why socialism has failed and will continue to fail. Well, where capitalism, whatever its shortcomings, has produced the greatest wealth and prosperity in modern history, well, socialism always continues to fail on, on that score. Um what, what do you make of uh, American socialists and, and their, their views? Uh, what, what, do, what do they want to see in America? What kind of system do we expect, like people like the squad and, and Bernie Sanders? Well, in the case of Bernie Sanders, we can say that historically there's been one government in the world that he praise to the sky and was really smitten by and and said they were doing the most wonderful things for their country. And that was the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua Mm -hmm. was there until it was kicked out by the Nicaraguan people. 
in a free open election uh, that the Sandinistas had done everything to prevent. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, Sanders is not a, a, an old fashioned communist mm -hmm. that used to follow Stalin, uh, but uh, he's, uh, he's some, he's, he, th there's a kind of spectrum from socialist to communist, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's, uh, he, he's somewhere in between, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the true socialists or the best socialists did continue to believe in democracy and that's why they didn't support dictatorships. Mm -hmm. Western socialists. Now, that, now in the third world, it was different. They were dictators, but in the Western country, they continued to support democracy. But they thought they could uh, democratically create a socialist economy. Uh, but they got halfway, let's say, with the uh, you know, welfare measures. But they, but then they realized they had to stop shorter, or the publics in the Western countries wouldn't put up with it, and and made them stop. The communists said, yeah, but you see, you guys can never bring about true socialism. It's already been proven. So uh, even if we have to, you know, use a kind of raw power, but we will bring the promised land of socialism. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders was sort of somewhere in the middle of those two camps. I mean, he was sort of half socialist, half communist. Mm -hmm. And that probably, you know, the a whole bunch of members of the squad mm -hmm. are also members of the, this group, uh, Democratic Socialists of America. Mm -hmm. And they're very much of the same ilk. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not really democratic. In the, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I've noticed that, you know, uh, they, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America, they boast that they're the largest socialist party in the U.S. and they support Latin communists defunding the police. And they've also got chapters that are openly, uh, you know, Marxist Leninist, if right. if not in name, but in 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 rhetoric, at least. Right. They, they have, you know, as you probably know, when I mentioned my book. I mean, where I started as a youngster was in something called the Socialist Party of America, mm -hmm. which I'm happy to say was not communist. Was We did believe in democracy, but we also believed in this fantasy of a, you know, a socialist economy, which I you know, think now is very silly. But that, that's what we believe. When our, and then over oh, around 1970, our party split in half. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, I I was part of the more the sort of right wing socialists, and the left wingers of our group went and formed their own group, and then they in turn merged with a group that had come out of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. and and created Democratic Socialists of America. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was from the get go sort of half socialists and half. Half left-wing socialists and half, you know, communists. Maybe that some of them would say they were, you know, revisionist communists, or they didn't believe in the, you know, the pure old Soviet model. But they were still people who thought communism was a lot better than uh, capitalist democracy. Right.
Yeah, uh, you know, communist ideology regards socialism as the way station on the road to the ideal worker's paradise, the, the utopian vision. My view is that socialists, as has been shown, are unable to survive ideologically from the power of Marxism-Leninism, and that those who promote socialism seem unaware of this. What, what's your view of that? You, you mean moderate socialists are unable to... Yeah, they can't survive. I mean, when communists take over, the, one of the first people they get rid of are the socialists, the, the well, non-communist socialists. No, no, I think that's very that's very true. Uh, though there's a lot, you know there's uh, you know a lot of history of that, and what what has ha- what happened in a lot of countries is that uh, a you know small group, I don't know usually a few leaders, maybe 10% or something of the socialists decided, you know, what the heck will go with the flow when they embrace the communists. And the others said, no, this, is, this isn't real socialism. Look how cruel and dictatorial they are. And those people really got, I mean, I, we I admire them for sticking to their principles, but they really got squelched. Yeah. Last question: What what can what can we do to better educate young people, in particular, about the ideologies of communism, American Marxism, these kinds of things? You got any ideas and suggestions? Oh, um, well, of course, everyone should read my book. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Bill, um, we certainly can't uh, expect the uh, public school systems to do it, uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, any uh, special method, you know, we we have to uh, talk about it, write about it, encourage people to study it and, uh, 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 and, and to understand that uh, it's, it's very much still a problem and a mm-hmm. and danger and and even even if it wasn't there are important lessons to learn that is i don't think nazism is a danger or a problem uh today uh, mm-hmm. i mean there are some you know nut jobs here and there who still who, who are neo-nazis but they don't amount to anything yeah, uh, but the whole uh, historical dynamics that that brought about that are embodied in the story of of Nazism, which directly brought about World War Two, uh, probably the greatest, you know, certainly the greatest man-made catastrophe in all of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, people damn well should be studying that. So uh, it it's. Um, it's really important, and you know, there's a it's part of a bigger problem, Bill, which is w- with the rise of uh, social media. Uh, people like to get their information in uh, uh, what's the maximum number of characters on Twitter? Now? <laughs> 140 something, 149 or so. No, they enlarge it a little bit, Bill. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're a little behind the times. <laughs> I think it's, maybe it's 200 and something now. Okay. But, but but the point is, you know, 
how much history can you teach someone in 200 yeah. characters? Yep. Uh, uh, and it really, uh, you know, I fear that people, younger people, aren't reading books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I, you know, I'm I don't have a solution for it except the, except to point to the problem and and say it's a problem. And read your book, which uh, we've been talking with uh, Josh Moravchek. He's the author of Heaven on Earth, The Rise and Fall and Afterlife of Socialism. Uh, how can people get the book and how do they uh, follow you on social media? Well, the book, the book is on, uh, uh, on Amazon mm-hmm. and uh, easy to get and, and uh, hardback, uh, paperback, uh, 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 um, Kindle, uh, Recorded books, uh, you know, the take uh, take your pick, and uh, I I don't uh, uh, do a, I am on Twitter. I don't I don't and people are warmly invited to to follow me on on, mm-hmm. on Twitter. It's I use as I do in in writing them, you know, on on, uh, on the book and other places. I use my full first name, Joshua. And, uh, 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 but mostly when I, I'm on, you know, I'm on Twitter to learn. I mean, I, you can, mm-hmm. you know, see what other people are saying and it's, yeah. uh, but, but I occasionally, but I occasionally can't help myself <laughs> and commenting <laughs> on some things that other people are saying that I think are really wrong headed. Yep. Yeah. It's become, it's actually been kind of an ideological battleground Twitter and, and Facebook to a lesser degree. But anyway, Josh, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Victory Over Communism. Uh, Tune back in in a couple of weeks for the next one. I'll be talking about Chinese communism. Thanks for listening to Victory Over Communism with award-winning national security journalist Bill Gertz. The only program in the free world unafraid to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how the Communist Party of China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. See you next time on Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz.